You may not need your map today because we're still in Athens. Paul is still in Athens. He's waiting on his buddies, Luke and Timothy, to come and join him there. And they're going to continue the uh, next leg of his second missionary journey. But while he was in Athens, Paul had some business he needed to conduct. We talked a bit about this last time, but Athens was a cultural and intellectual capital of the Greek world. It was full of everything that you'd want, uh, philosophy, literature, art, you name it. To boot, it was the uh, birthplace of democracy. And so Athens was a big deal. And in many ways, it was like a microcosm of the pagan world at its best. At Athens, you would look at and see, this is what, this is what the Greco-Roman world can be. And the pagan world was always haunted by the unknowability of God. That is something that we see going way back. I mean, one of the most famous guy to ever come from Athens, Plato, said these things. It is hard to investigate and to find the framer and the father of the universe. And if one did find him, it would be impossible to express him in terms which all could understand. Aristotle, another famous Athenian, he described God as the supreme cause by all men dreamed of, but by no men known. So there was a notion that there was a greatest God, a first cause, an unmoved mover, but we can't really know him. And, and this isn't just Athenian and way back then. This is, this is paganism in its essence. Go into the 1400s. The Aztec king, Nazaholcoyotl, I said that exactly right, said this, Truly the gods which I adore, idols of stone and wood, speak not, nor feel. Neither could they have created the beauty of the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, which light the earth with its foundations and waters. There must be some God, invisible and unknown, who is the universal creator. There's that desire to know the one true God, and yet the way it manifests over and over again is in a proliferation of idols, of stone and precious metals, of wood even. And as Paul was walking through the streets of Athens waiting to meet up with his buds, he is provoked within his spirit. He is distressed at just the sheer number of idols, the volume of the idolatry and so he begins to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks and the synagogues to go into the marketplace and talk to all of the Gentiles, the pagans, about this Jesus. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, and they think these are two foreign gods. He's not really connecting quite yet. Yesu and Anastasius, which is the, the word for resurrection, but also a name, Anastasia, right? Like that would be a, a female name. So they think he's preaching a god and a goddess. They don't know who these are. And so he starts a, a conversation with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in the marketplace. And they say to him, you've got to come with us, man. We found a guy with new gods. We're going to go to the Areopagus. Areopagus simply means Mount of Ares. Ares is the Greek god of war, best known recently for fighting Wonder Woman. He's not real, but he had a hill, and they went there. And their god is proclaimed, the one true god, infinitely greater than all these lesser deities, worshipped by the Greek and the, the Romans. And the way that Paul does finally make a connection is he says, I've walked around your city. I've seen that you are in always religious. 
I mean, in every way you can be religious, you are. Down to the fact that you have an altar that says to an unknown God, just in case we missed one. So you think I'm here promoting foreign gods, gods you've never heard of, but I'm not. You've known of this God, but you haven't known of him. You've sensed him. He's saved you. We talked about that last time from an enormous uh, national disaster, a plague that threatened to decimate you. And now the one that you worship without knowing, in ignorance, I proclaim to you. He's saying, not only do I also worship this unknown God, but I know him. And he is the only one true, infinite God who created everything. Notice again, it's worth repeating, that Paul does not jump right into idolatry is wicked, your hearts are a disaster, dumpster fire. It's true that idolatry is wicked. Romans 1, we heard read earlier, it is wicked and leads to wickedness. I mean, what is really going on in these pagan temples? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I would not that you should have communion with demons. And so there is literally a form of devil worship going on here. And he could, he could level both barrels and let rip, but instead he says, even though this is wicked stuff, it's coming out of a place where you're reaching out toward your creator. I see you're religious. Even if you translate that superstitious, he sees in them this hardwired desire that God has given everyone to know their creator. Because we were all created to know him. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Last time we went pretty deep into the background, particularly this altar to the unknown God, and we saw how God in his sovereignty had laid the groundwork for that particular proclamation of the gospel centuries and centuries in advance. This time I want to look more at the who he's talking to and how he talks to them. Because Paul is smart about this stuff. When he's talking to the Jews in the synagogues, he is quoting scripture, scripture that they accept. He knows it, he quotes it, he interacts with them on that level. Now he's talking to those who don't have any interest in or knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. Is he just going to pull out the Bible and start doing that again? No. He meets them at a place where they can connect. And, and you know, in this world, it used to be that everyone knew a little scripture, right? You could say to people, you've been to Sunday school, you know the basics of the Bible, but let me explain why it's important and, and tell them the gospel. You can't now. You've been to Sunday school? No, I haven't. So few, a, a minority of people now go to church. A minority of children are raised with any kind of foundation in the scriptures. We're starting at square one like Paul is here on the Mount of Ares, and so it would be wise of us to pay attention to how it is he connects with people who know everything spiritual but nothing about Jesus. They know all the latest ideas. In fact, we're told they do nothing but listen to and discuss the latest ideas, but they don't even know the basics of the God who created the universe. All they know is that he's an unknown God. So who he's talking to here are the two most popular groups of the day, philosophically speaking, the most influential groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Who here is more of like an Epicurean guy? Now, who's more Stoics? Nope. All right, all right, well, we'll, we'll decide then. The Epicureans, they were basically like the, the, the hedonists of the day. God exists, or rather the gods exist. Yes, they're real, but the gods have very little interest 
in our lives or our welfare. So the best you can do is to devote yourself to sort of squeeze the most pleasure and gratification out of this life as you possibly can, experience as little pain as possible, and it's essentially pure materialism. If it, feel good, if it feels good, do it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's an Epicurean worldview. Many of you have experienced how empty such a lifestyle is before you came to Christ. But there are many people who will live in that empty lifestyle and just get a little hit of dopamine here and there and say, I guess that's enough. I guess this is life. It almost reminds me of like the opioid crisis you read about People who are trapped in this cycle of, I need to avoid pain, and so they become addicted to a substance that wasn't properly explained to them, and now the pain is dulled, but at the cost of becoming a slave. That is, in my view, what the Epicureans were doing, and what all hedonists are doing. In our culture, this is, this is very popular. Epicureans are everywhere. I remember noticing this even though it was just the most obvious thing in the world, six or seven years ago, there was this song that I heard everywhere. Tonight we are young. You know that one? Some of the young people do. It's the one you hear in the mall all the time now because it's gotten old enough to be on like the light rock channel. It goes, tonight, and that'll be in your head the rest of the day if you know the song. And after that, I started noticing like all these songs that were about tonight. We've just got this moment. We've got this. Let's 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 squeeze it for all it's got. Sleep with me. Let's go party. Let's just because all we have is this moment. Well, we're young before life passes us by and we've missed it. And then I realized those songs have always been there. It's just that they were like for me. They were talking about me earlier. And I was like 37 when this song went out. Oh, oh, they're not talking about me anymore. Tonight, I'm staying in because my knees hurt, right? So that, that's Epicurean thought. And, and we all know people who are currently living or trying to live the Epicurean life. The question is, are we troubled by it? Or do we kind of love it? Do we sort of hold it up? What do we watch on TV? Epicureanism is very much lifted up in our culture. I mean, go back to the 80s. What was it? Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I confess, love the show, love Robin Leach's accent, love the whole thing. But it's just like, here's conspicuous consumption. This is, this is the best you can do. Is If you could someday reach this point, you could squeeze that little bit more of pleasure or physical gratification or whatever out of, out of life for this moment. In the 90s, MTV's Cribs, right? Look where all your favorite rock stars and hip-hop stars live and all the stuff that they have acquired. In the 2000s, it was something, I don't know, I wasn't paying attention. Now... Maybe it's HGTV. For me, anyway, we don't have cable, but I will tell you, when I am waiting in any doctor's office or dentist's office, that's on, and I secretly love it. Because I like to see, you know, these undeserving 21-year-olds buying a lake house. I don't know why, but there's something about going, wow, to, to attain that, to have that awesome of a pile of stuff, essentially. We, we aren't troubled by it the way we should be when our world becomes fully Epicurean. And then there's Stoics, of course. The Stoics were more realist in their view of things. They say, listen, you can't avoid the bad. The Epicureans are living in a, in a dream world. And so Stoicism was more about dealing with the pain and negativity, taking responsibility for oneself, which sounds better when you just say it. it sounds very American, really. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, stick out your chin, grin and bear it. Maybe do some good while you're at it. Do some good work. Help your neighbor. 
They believed that the gods were best found, or the god idea was best found, in the world's soul, kind of the spirit of the world, if you will. That's where you find God indwelling all things. And, and at the end of the day, many people hold to this worldview today as well. Maybe we start young as Epicureans, and as we get a little more jaded and experienced, we become Stoics. And we start to think that, well, grin and bear it, stiff upper lip, this sense that this is the best we can do. I'm no longer pulling a ton of gratification and pleasure out of every moment, but I don't have to whine about it. There's no sense of God's presence in this. Just endure, endure, endure. Shoulder what life gives you like Atlas holding up the world on his back. But the problem with that is as it grows and grows and we grow weaker and older, eventually you will be crushed. It sounds hopeless because it is. In fact, many tombstone inscriptions from that time read this phrase. This is wild. I was not. I was. I am not. I do not care. Deep. And really, really sad. And empty. We're surrounded today, I would argue, by Epicureans and Stoics, just like Paul was in Athens. They just don't wear those labels. And we're surrounded today by idolatry as well, just as Paul was in Athens. It just doesn't take the forms of little stone and metal guys. Rather, the idolatry is more overt, perhaps. We're not even going to dress it up like a god. We're just going to worship the wealth itself or the pleasure itself. And yet, I do not think we feel the sense of being distressed in our spirits that Paul did as he walked around Athens. As Paul wrote in Romans 1, idolatry is the result of a mind that is perverted and shrouded by sin and a desire for self-worship. And at some point, God even hands us over to our wicked lusts. And as Paul lays this out, it's a very well-organized sermon. And I've heard it laid out in five parts or six. It has an intro. It has four points. And then maybe he gets to the beginning of the conclusion before he is rudely interrupted. People start jingling their keys like, uh, I need to go to the restaurant. Too close to home? Sorry. <laughs> so he, he, I've heard it laid out this way. He, there's an intro, and then the first point is, God is the creator of all things. The second point is, God is the sustainer of all things. Thirdly, God is the ordainer of all things. And finally, we should seek him and repent. That's the sermon. It's straight to the point, and it is brilliantly crafted for his particular audience because he is quoting their own poets, their own culture, to them. And he's pointing to areas where what they believe he can overlap with, and he can use it as an on-wrap to gospel truth. He quotes Epimenides, who we talked about last time, and he quotes two other Greek poets favorably. In the intro, he makes a very simple statement. I saw the altar to the unknown God. You worship a God that is unknown or in ignorance, and I now proclaim him to you. That seems straightforward, but I think this is the most important part of the whole sermon. Because this is the thing we are loath to do today or to say today. You have an ignorance about God. I know about God, and so I will proclaim the truth of God to you. What an unpopular idea, because it implies, or rather insists, that your spiritual understanding is inadequate, or maybe even downright wrong, and that I have the objective truth that you are missing. 
Our culture hates this idea perhaps more than anything, so much that they vilify it on one hand. And it means that you are hateful and narrow-minded. And on the other hand, they continually mock it as silly and backwards and ignorant. Our culture is an awful lot like Athens today. One papyrus from Athens reads this, I pray to all gods. We magnify every god. Tolerance was definitely the predominant view until the god that you were praying to or proclaiming got under the status quo and threatened to undo things or overturn the system as it was. Tolerance of all sorts of religious views was kind of the brand of the Greco-Roman world, unless, again, it would upset the balance and, and urge people to, to look deeper into their own hearts and find themselves renewed. And, and that's why Christians were hated and persecuted in pagan Rome, just as biblical Christianity is hated more and more in the world today. A another study just came out that, that religious persecution in general is a bigger problem today than it ever has been in the world, and that Christians are the most persecuted group around the world. There are countries in which Christians are slaughtered every day. Probably there are Christians being slaughtered as we meet here in our air-conditioned sanctuary. Even as tolerance is the rallying cry of the day, we find that the gospel is more and more vilified because it is one of the few worldviews that challenges the status quo and the direction that we are moving. Our culture says spiritual truth is different from any other kind of truth. There's no right or wrong. It's whatever makes you feel good and feel safe and helps you deal with difficulties in life. In other words, the unofficial official spirituality of America in the 21st century is a mix of Epicurean and Stoic philosophy. If it feels good, do it. If it feels good, believe it. And if it helps you to be a better person, then who is anyone to suggest it's not true? If you do, then you're part of the problem. But unless we're willing to do exactly that, Exactly what Paul did here to walk into that situation and say you're missing the main thing and that main thing is the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection. You're never going to truly lead someone to Jesus Christ. It requires our willingness to go against the culture 180 degrees. You see, people love their altars to unknown gods because unknown gods require nothing of you. Unknown gods are tameable gods. I can fill in all the blanks, and wouldn't you know it, my God at the end of the day looks an awful lot like me, believes everything I believe, and only commands me to live my own truth. The gospel says don't live your truth. There is no your truth. There is the truth. Jesus said I am the way and the truth and the life. Or we could translate that I am the journey and the truth, and the life. He's the journey and the destination. No one comes to the Father but by me, he says. And where we see revival today in the church in the midst of spiritual famine in our land, it's where Christians and where churches have been willing to proclaim just that, this radical message. And when I say radical, I mean the original meaning of that word, having to do with the root, not the outer things, not the behaviors not the political affiliations, but the heart, the root of the matter. That's his intro. I'm going to proclaim to you what you don't know and you need to know. And his willingness to do that, I think, is what sets him apart from 99% of evangelistic efforts today. 
God, then, he is proclaiming three different ways. First, as the creator, then as the sustainer, then as the ordainer. God is the creator. What, really, his, his ultimate question undergirding all of this section is, what good is a God that you make? How is that going to help? A God that you make? You should be worshiping the God who made you. In fact, look at verse 29. Being, then, God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, man is created by the art and imagination of God out of nothing. So Paul then meets them where they are. He doesn't say, let's go flip in your Bibles. Oh, you don't have Bibles. I'll just read you. Genesis 1.1. Now, I have no doubt he would have gotten to Scripture had he not been cut off. And I have no doubt that when he met with those who said, we will hear him again, that he opened his Bible and said, oh, you're interested? Here's the text. But as he is just meeting up with people in that first encounter, he starts telling them stuff they know that their own poets said. I know a guy, by the way, who connected with a friend over Sarah McLaughlin lyrics. I didn't say that right, did I? McLaughlin. It got them to a place of truth and talking about what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what God is like. What do you believe, we might ask someone. Did anyone create all this? Is there any life-giving spirit that's, that's greater than all of us? That's a starting point. And to connect with someone at that point, for them to concede that much, can make sharing the gospel seem less like a very awkward endeavor and more like a normal conversation. What do you believe? Oh, if you're at all polite, you're then going to ask me, what do I believe? He says God is the creator, the creator of all things. He created all of us from one man, all the nations that exist today. By the way, any kind of racism or that sort of thing is immediately just overturned by that one statement. From one man, everybody. Our world wants you to believe that there are groups of people who are fitter or not fit, and then we, we, don't, we don't talk that way, but the way people understand the world to have evolved in this sort of thing often implies that some are fitter than others. The scriptures say no, we're came from one man, and we all equally are God's offspring. Then he moves on to God being the sustainer. He sustains all things. He gives you life and breath and everything else, in Paul's words. Idolatry of all kinds sort of assumes that we provide for God. In this case, they provide these beautiful uh, temples and buildings, houses for God, things that they have to serve him with their human hands. But no, he says the opposite is true. What good is a God that you have to provide for? Worship a God that provides for you. Colossians 1.17 He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. God created the universe and everything in it and everyone in it, but if He were not to be sustaining us right now, we'd disappear. He continues to sustain us every moment, even to this very hour. He's the unseen force holding everything together. I mean, think about where we, we imagine the world came from. An explosion that leads to order? Yeah, because God is in there. He is creating. He is sustaining. And He is a God of order, not chaos. God the ordainer. He says that God has in His wisdom determined not only when and where you will live, but when you will die and when you will stand before the judgment he determines where you will be, who you will be, what you will be, and then we are able to live out our lives to glorify Him in that setting. That can be comforting to me. Because it's easy to say, you know, if I'd been born somewhere else, I'd be someone totally different. 
How do I know what I'm really supposed to be? Well, because God put me here. And I can be anything that I'm able to be, but God put me here as a starting point. And he put within me desires and dreams and gifts and abilities. This is good news. There's, there's more to life than pleasure, which can never satisfy in the long run. I mean, all you have to do is follow this stuff to its natural end. What is sadder than a rock and roller, famous rock and roll, I'm not going to name any names, that somehow defies death and makes it into the 70s or 80s, still trying to live that sex, drugs, and rock and roll ethos. There's more to life than that. There's more to life than keeping a stiff upper lip and soldiering on in the face of difficulty until one day you die. God is the ordainer as well as the creator and sustainer. And he did all of this with a purpose. Look at verse 27. God has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. For, and then he quotes their poet, in him we live and move and have our being. The very God who created the world and everything in it, the Grand Canyon, the God who created the stars in the sky, the God who created the sun and the moon, that very God determined that you would live where and when you do. He sustains you every day, every moment, and he calls you to seek him. And he has revealed himself so that you can find him. What a marvelous God. Now compare that to all the silent statues lining the Areopagus, lining the, the Parthenon, all, all of this stuff that's silently sitting there, powerless, as Paul describes the one true God. There's a Toby Mac song that I think has wonderful lyrics. It says this, I was made to love you. I was made to find you. I was made just for you, made to adore you. I was made to love and be loved by you. I think that's just profound. I was made to find you. God created us to find him. Not to hide from us, not to, to test us, are you, are you good enough? But he created us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. He created us to find him and to make sure that we could. He came in the person of Jesus Christ and revealed himself to us. He says he has come that we might reach out and feel our way to him. And, and the Greek that he uses here, by the way, it was fairly uh, famous uh, verbiage from a story uh, of Homer's about Odysseus. Uh, there's the story of the Cyclops. You probably read this in school. The Cyclops has got one eye, of course. That's what makes him a Cyclops. And he's captured Odysseus and his men, and he's planning to do terrible things to him, but they somehow turn the tables. They stake him through his one eye, and then they slip out. And as they slip out, he is feeling around, groping around, trying to find them before they can escape. Same word that's used here for feeling our way toward God to find him. We're just as blind as that Cyclops, and yet because God is revealing himself, because we were made to find him, we can feel our way, find our way, reach out and touch him. Because he wants to be found. Again, this is the same verb that Jesus uses in Luke 24, when he says, see my hands and my feet, it's I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Or the King James says, handle me. 
Reach out, touch me. Feel the holes in my hands and in my side. And when Paul says you are in all ways religious, he knows that people everywhere are reaching out blindly, looking for a God, but ultimately they're looking into themselves for God. And so God came in the person of Christ so that we could find him when our hearts are softened. Like the men of the Areopagus who spend all their time doing nothing but discussing and listening to the latest ideas, people today are content to float from spiritual fad to spiritual fad, never really finding any ultimate truth, sort of patching together their own custom non-religion. But what if God created us with a destination in mind and not just aimless wandering? What if he intended for us to find him? That's what evangelism is all about. We are guides to lead people who want to find God to a God who wants to be found. What a wonderful job that is. Again, our culture says we should be spiritual but not religious. We we should be searching but never finding. Eternally seeking the divine? Cool. Finding God? Not so much. It's all about the journey, man, not the destination. The answer, we're told, is to keep on asking the questions. What's important is to have the conversation, not to reach any conclusions. Doubt becomes the new faith. Faith, the kind of faith that we read about in the scriptures, faith in something certain and solid and secure, is dead like disco. In fact, someone who says, I have that kind of secure faith and certainty, is often even scoffed at within the walls of the church more and more. But, my friends, Paul did not say, hey, you've got an unknown God, I've got an unknown God. Let's journey together and do life in our uncertainty, seeking and seeking, but never finding. That's not what he said. He had better news than that. In 2 Timothy 3, he warns us about those who were ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's not just about asking the questions and having the conversation. In fact, for how much the idea of continual conversation being the ultimate good is bandied about today, in the New Testament, at least in the ESV, the word occurs only one time in the Gospel of Luke. As two men are walking down the road to Emmaus, talking about what has been happening, that this Jesus they had hoped would be the Messiah, he died, but now there's rumors he's back. Jesus walks up, very sneaky, not recognized. And he says, what are you talking about in your conversation? They say what they're talking about. And he doesn't say, well, good. Keep asking the questions. Keep having the conversation. No, beginning back in the book of Genesis and going through the whole Bible, he shows them how the Son of Man had to be rejected and crucified and on the third day rise again in order that sinners could be saved. He enters into the conversation, yes, but he brings tangible truth. He brings them to a point of decision. Will you believe what the Scriptures say? And then he reveals himself in the breaking of the bread to be Jesus himself. If I could have been a fly on the wall at any moment in all the Bible, I'd pick that one. I couldn't bear to see the crucifixion. I wouldn't want to fall down and shake like a dead man at the resurrection, but I would like to see their faces when Jesus disappears, and they recognize who's been walking with them. Jesus came, though, not to continually enable our seeking and seeking. He doesn't say, seek, and you will continue journeying in your uncertainty for the rest of your life. Jesus said, seek, and you will find. 
Seek and you will find. He came to offer a definitive answer to the problem of mankind. The problem of sin and death and separation from God. We were wandering like sheep without a shepherd. He looked at us with compassion. We were wandering like the Israelites out in the wilderness. And he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come and I will be your destination. He came to show us the way, the truth, the life. He came to seek and to save the lost. And yet, even hearing the gospel, so many people prefer to shop for gods in the smorgasbord of spirituality and paganism pictured in this text as a row of physical idols, or to cobble together a god of their own design and then defend that god to the very end. Paul says, I will reveal to you what God is truly like. You're not going to like it, but maybe you will be saved when you hear it. And then finally he claims that they need to repent. He calls them to repentance. Notice he's been focusing on God's loving acts, creating, sustaining, ordaining the seasons and everything for you so that the God's rain falls on the just and unjust alike. But he does not stop short of calling them to repentance. He doesn't skip the difficult part that's going to rub them the wrong way. What must I do to be saved? The answer is repent and believe. Or repent and be baptized under the forgiveness of your sins, which means repent and believe. Why repent? Well, he gives a couple of good reasons here in verses 30 and 31. He points out God has been patient so far, overlooking your ignorance. He's overlooked the sins that have been done aforetime in Romans 1 and 2. Even though it is willful ignorance, he's been overlooking it, but that overlooking will not last forever. God commands us to repent, and he has appeared to us and declared that he has appointed a day of judgment, and it will come. And that is what Paul uses to determine a bit of urgency. Believe today. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, believe today. Repent of your sins today. John Owen said Satan's greatest success is in making people think they have plenty of time before they die to consider their eternal welfare. And finally then, after calling them to repent, he gets to the resurrection If you repent, you will be made new from death to life and a physical resurrection after your physical death. But he barely cracks the top of this one open when they come in and shut him down. They don't want to hear it. Why not? I don't know. Because they're hopeless and they need it. I think deep down they do want to hear it. You don't write, I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care on your tombstone unless you actually care. Otherwise, why bring it up? And the gospel is the antidote to that kind of hopelessness and fatalism. And yet, they don't listen all the way to the end. They stop him. I see this in our culture today, too. I was listening to a comedy podcast uh, this past week, and there was a group of people with a big live event, a big audience. And they were talking about the afterlife just in passing. And one of them said, oh, no, I believe when you die, that's it. You're donezo. And a predictable woo of cheer came up from the crowd. And I rewound it about five times because I could hear in the middle of this one and a half second long woo of cheering, this moment of turning from, whoa, boy, that's bad news. The bottom fell right out of it. The world knows that's hopelessness. Epicurean hedonism is hopelessness. Stoic fatalism is hopelessness. And yet when Paul says, here is some hope, 
They stop him. This is the one point where the Epicureans and Stoics can speak with one voice. And they say, we're going to stop you right there. Resurrection? So Anastasia is not the name of a, a new god, some shiny new goddess, but a literal resurrection from the dead? Why would anyone want that? They've been freed from the shackles of their body, which is evil, and now they're just a spirit, which is good. Why would you go back to the evil? You know, we've heard enough. Not even I'm going to let you finish. They're ruder than Kanye. They're just like, you're absolutely done. Paul knew this would be a deal breaker for many of them, but even though he met them halfway to find that point of connection, he has to tell them about the resurrection, just as he has to tell them about repentance, regardless of whether they reject him or not. He could not leave out anything vital to the gospel, because his goal is to lead them into the scriptures and ultimately to the cross of Jesus Christ. So how did this all turn out? Do we see a big church starting in Athens, as has happened in Berea and Iconium and all these other places they've been? Not right away, no. In fact, we're told that the, the crowd was split, but the majority was not having it. A lot of them laughed. They scoffed. They were like, what? These babblers? I knew they had nothing. I knew this Paul guy was just, he was just stitching together a few ideas that didn't really make any sense. Then there were some who said, actually, I would hear him again on this topic. And then a few that believed. Remember, Jesus told us many are called, but few are chosen. It's easy to think that Paul must have been disappointed here. But those few were the beginning of something huge eventually in Athens. And Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, one of those leading philosophers, does come to faith at this point. He is, by the way, later the bishop of Athens. He stays with the faith and continues to lead in the church. And then a prominent woman named Damaris and a number of others. Those are the ones God had ordained to eternal life at that time. He has set out for you where and when you will be born, when you will stand before him in judgment. And when we proclaim the gospel, we know that God in his spirit and in his time will call his own to himself. In fact, we're guaranteed success. Once again, let me remind you, a bunch of them laughed in his face. Some said, eh, maybe I'll listen to more later. And a few believed. Once again, what we take away from this text is, do not be discouraged when you proclaim the gospel to someone and it doesn't work. That's not for you to say. The Apostle Paul, who we all, with one voice in Christendom, whether you're Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, swinging from the chandelier Pentecostal or frozen chosen Presbyterian, we all agree Paul's the greatest missionary, right? And yet, wherever he goes, he gets this kind of split result. Some people want to kill him. Some people just point and laugh. Some people want to throw him in prison. But a few believe. And those are the ones that Jesus, through the Spirit, is calling to himself. Those are the ones who walk through the narrow gate. Remember, it's, it's small and few find it. The road to destruction is wide and big and many enter through it. But when the gospel is presented, a few find it and enter into it and walk on the way, the road, the journey toward the truth, the life that is Jesus. The God who created, who sustains, who ordains, also saves. Trust Him. Trust Him in His Spirit to be at work and proclaim the gospel. Find a point of contact, a point that you have in common with that person that God has placed in your path 
and connect and say, what do you believe? Tell me and listen. Close the yapper for a minute and listen and understand where they're coming from and bring them then gently to the gospel. But don't forget, you've got to include the death and the resurrection and the repentance unto life. Trust that God will use our feeble offerings just as He has throughout the Scripture. There's nobody who does anything impressive for God. There's only people saying, here's what I got, and God doing something great with it. That is how we should approach the proclaiming of the Gospel. Evangelism. That is how Paul approached it. And even where it might look like eh, it didn't work out so well, God is glorified. Heavenly Father, we thank You for what happened on the Areopagus when Paul entered into conversation with those who wanted to just keep it light and keep the conversation going. And Lord, we thank you that he brought it to a head and pointed to the one true God and said he created everything. He created everyone. We are all his offspring. He sustains everything. He sustains all of us. He ordains everything. And we must seek him, reach out, feel our way to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not reached out, who's been listening to the, the preaching of the Word and reading the Scripture and taking part in the life of the church, perhaps even, but hasn't reached out and, and grasped you and been saved, that, Lord, they would do it now, that they would hear the words that you are not far from them, and that they would, they would receive you and receive eternal life. And, Lord, we pray that as we leave this place, we would be emboldened to, to initiate conversations about things spiritual, knowing we don't have to have all the answers. All we need to do is be able and willing to point people to you as the source of everything, the source of life, and the source of salvation. Lord, we know we're surrounded by Epicureans and Stoics, and we know that most of them are finding out slowly or not so slowly just how empty those worldviews and those lifestyles are. Lord, we have the hope that they lack. Let us not be stingy with it. Let us not hoard it. Let us share it with the world. Let us shine a light into the darkness. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as we do. In your holy name we pray. Amen.